In my message this evening, I would like to take us into a topical study of Good Friday. This is not going to be the usual Sunday morning exposition of a text of Scripture where we open our Bibles and we begin moving verse by verse through a limited or focused section of sacred writ. Rather, this is going to be a deep dive into various sections of Scripture. I will be highlighting uh, one book in particular so you don't have to get paper cuts tonight flipping all around, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be cross-referencing some texts and using one main text that I'll ask you to turn to in just a moment, and I'm going to be doing this so that we can really just take a deep dive on Good Friday and what Good Friday is all about. As it is Good Friday, let's talk about Good Friday, and more specifically, let's talk about the cross of Calvary and the profound significance of the death of the historic Jesus of Nazareth on that cross. That said, before I get into the various sections of Scripture for tonight's message, I want to begin by way of introduction by talking about the holy day that is Good Friday, and also about this man, the historical Jesus of Nazareth, whose identity is absolutely crucial, indeed indispensable, for any and all who want to understand the night of hallowed commemoration before us. Good Friday is a holy day in the Christian calendar. On this day, on this night, millions of Christians from all around the world will gather in their respective local churches to worship God together and to commemorate, even to celebrate the historic day in which our Lord Jesus the Christ gave himself for us as a sacrifice for sin. This giving of himself was not just historic, it was horrific. According to Professor L. Michael Morales, I'll put the quote in front of you, in the world of the first century, Roman crucifixion was not only a horrific form of torture, reserved for the lowest dregs of the criminal class, but it was associated with severe shame. Not only were Roman citizens exempt from this humiliating death, but even the word crucifixion was avoided in social gatherings. In the Jewish mindset, crucifixion was seen through the lens of Deuteronomy 21-23, which declares that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed of God. As you can see, by way of introduction here, Good Friday is a, a scene of shame, a scene of scandal, along with being a scene of suffering, but culturally it was, it was, it was scandalous. The, the idea of celebrating a crucifixion is, is utterly counterintuitive in the first century context. You would celebrate a crucifixion? What, what's, what's wrong with you? That's counterintuitive. That's oxymoronic. You know about oxymorons when you combine words that create a contradiction in terms. Plastic silverware. Oh, is it plastic or silver? Jumbo shrimp. Is it jumbo or a shrimp? Boneless ribs, you know, the McRib, boneless ribs, vegetarian meatballs, and of course my favorite country music, which always makes people upset. And they rap music, Pastor Matt. Okay, oh touche. Likewise, a crucifixion celebration, that's an oxymoron. Good Friday is an oxymoron. I have lost a lot of people in my life, and for none of them do I, on the anniversary of their death, get together with my, my friends on the day of their death and uh, celebrate the manner in which they died. If anything, we might get together and mourn. We might get together and sort of share stories or, and, and whatnot, but we don't get, we don't get together and, and do a big old party and start talking about how they were killed. And to be sure, friends and family of Jesus 
they, they would have gotten together to, to mourn on the first anniversary of that horrific Friday. However, another historical event made mourning unnecessary. Uh, the event of history that I have in mind is Easter or Resurrection Sunday. You see, it is Sunday that makes Good Friday good. You see, it is Sunday that makes Good Friday not, not counterintuitive, not oxymoronic. It is Sunday that explains why we can celebrate a crucifixion. Sunday makes Friday good. In the first century, the Apostle Paul made this statement, and I put it in front of you, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, your faith is also in vain. It's, wor it's worthless if Sunday didn't come. It's absolutely worthless if Sunday didn't come. You see, if Sunday didn't come, then Friday would not be good. It would be sad Friday, uh, sadistic Friday, bad Friday. If resurrection did not happen, then Friday would be a humiliation for both Jesus and his followers. And worse than humiliation, it would be the reality of damnation still on their backs. The Apostle Paul reflected on this in this section of 1 Corinthians that I have in front of you. He, he spoke in verse 15 of chapter 15 of, hey, we would be false witnesses if Sunday didn't come. Hey, hey, worse than being false witnesses, worse than being liars, we would be condemned. We would be, in verse 17 he says, still in our sins. We would be, verse 19 he says, of, of all men most to be pitied. Without resurrection, they, they, they would have been liars. Without resurrection, they, they would have been condemned. They would still be dead in their sins. The corpse of Christ decomposing in a cold grave in Jerusalem still on Monday morning would mean that, that, that he, the Christ, was a liar and not the Lord. Or perhaps not a liar, but a lunatic. That, that is, maybe he wasn't intentionally running around claiming to, to, to die and be risen and claiming to be God in the flesh and claiming to be the Messiah of Israel and all these things. Maybe that wasn't intentional. Maybe he just, you know, he didn't have his pills, you see. He didn't have proper care. He was a bit loony. It wasn't intentional, this deception. It was just delusional. He, Jesus, thought that he was something that he wasn't. He had a messianic complex. We know about people who have messiah complexes and you know, think they're, they're gods and whatnot. Maybe that was just the case. If his corpse was still in the tomb then, Good Friday would not be good at all. It would be yet another would-be messiah, another self-appointed savior to add to the list of fraudulent figures in history whose bodies have rotted in the ground. However, in this case, his body rose. And in this case, his message of salvation and claim to be God was vindicated, giving his people every reason to trust who he was and who he is and what he has done for us. The great Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis once had a series of radio talks on the BBC radio in the UK in which he reasoned over the airways with regard to the veracity of the historical Jesus, that he wasn't lying, he wasn't a lunatic, he wasn't deceiving, he wasn't delusional. And I'll quote the great mind, C.S. Lewis, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's what people say a lot, right? This is the one thing that we must not say, Lewis writes. A, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, there's that British humor for you, or else he would be a, a, the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a, a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and he is God. And I should add here to Lewis's astute observation that he's not just any old God. He's the true and living God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the one true and living triune God who created the world and all that is. You look around, all of it. He made it all. He made everything. And He created this wonderful world to, 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 to know His wonders, to worship the wonderful God who He is, and to, to, to know His love. He is a God of love who made a world to know His love. He's, he's, he's a creative and powerful God who, who made us with psyches and minds that we could behold Him and stand in awe of Him and adore Him and live for Him. But we took our psyches and our minds and our wiring and the rest and we used it to rebel against Him. And so humanity has rebelled against the giver of life and as a result, the punishment that fits that crime is the taking back of life. And so we have death and we die because we rebelled against the one who gave us life. And along the way to death, we have dysfunction because we rebelled against the one who gave order to life. It, 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 it is quite intuitive that we have all this disarray and dysfunction when you rebel against the one who made order and you go against him, then there's going to be disorder. You rebel against the one who gives you life, there's going to be the taking back of life. But you see, this God of love, this God of power, this God of wonders is a God of grace and compassion and mercy. And he saw fit in his sovereign plan to enact a redemption of the rebellion, to rescue from among the, the, the rebels of people for himself, to, to know his love and to know his saving graces. And that, and that is what we're talking about on Good Friday. We're talking about this, this one who is on the cross is the eternal Son who is one with the Father and Spirit. This one God who created, this one God who loved, this one God whose love was unrequited, this one God who responded in grace and mercy. The person of the Son is the one who is hanging on the tree. He is dying, literally dying, so that He can give life to the rebel creation. You see, on Good Friday... There's a sense in which we would say God hangs on the cross. The, the, the creator who, who planted the, the forests of the world, the, 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 one, the, the one who created the forests of the, the world, a tree would be chopped down that he put in creation and would be formed into the very cross that he would be pinned to. The creator became a part of creation and steps into the fallen storyline in order to redeem a people for himself. The historic man that is hanging on the cross that we commemorate is more than a mere man. He, surely he's fully man, but additionally he is fully God. He is fully God and fully man in one person, the eternal Son, who we refer to as the historical Jesus of Nazareth. They're the same person. So by way of introduction, we have the identity of Jesus before us. You have the good news of a God who has come to redeem rebels before us. 
you, you have the theological background so that we can make sense of what it is that is going on with this topic of Good Friday and why it's good to us, why it's holy to us. And now I want us to open our Bibles, and if you would, would you find your way to the Gospel of John? And I want to move into the body of the message, having laid a bit of an introduction here. The body of the message tonight will be structured around Jesus' cross, specifically on the meaning of what he was doing on the cross on that Good Friday. The title of my sermon tonight is, That's Not It. Have you ever, you know, looked for something and you have someone helping you? Is this it? Is this it? No, that's not it. Is this it? No, that's not it either. Well, how about this? No, that's not it either. And they go, well, describe to me what, it, what it's like. And you, well, it looks like this and it's kind of like this. And you pull up, oh, okay, you know. When you're dealing with physical sorts of things, it's really easy to describe what it's like. Uh, but when you're dealing with deep mysteries like the cross and the Creator, often it's quite helpful to say what it's not like. And so I, in my message tonight, I'm going to be talking about Good Friday, and I'm going to be telling you about what Good Friday is not, in addition to telling you what Good Friday is. In the body of the message, I want to talk about uh, Good Friday and the things about Good Friday that are not true of Good Friday. I want to talk about the cross and the crucifixion of the eternal Son of God in the flesh, and I want to show you some things about it that it's not in order to help us make sense of what it is. There is a phrase, via negativa, that is a helpful phrase to understand, via negativa. It is a Latin phrase that means by way of negation. In teaching, via negativa is a way of describing something by saying what it is not. And in this sense, it's a kind of subtractive knowledge. It, it, it's teaching about what something is by saying what that something is not. NYU distinguished professor Nassim Nicholas Taleb wrote, we cannot explain everything. We know more about what something is not than what something is. If there would not have been no word for the color blue, it still would have existed in reality. It would not have been absent in, uh, it would have only been absent in linguistics, he writes. But since we don't have a word for it, we could define it, or, or we couldn't define it or comprehend it, but we would still be able to say what it's not. Uh, it's not orange, it's not an elephant, etc. The method of knowledge is truer and more rigorous than positive knowledge, he writes. Now, I'm not sure I would agree with the last line that it's more rigorous uh, or, or truer. True, uh, truth is just true. You don't have to, there's not truer truths or anything like that. You know, 3 plus 3 is 6 is truer than 2 plus 2 is 4. They're not truer truths. Uh, I don't know that I would call it more rigorous. Learning positive knowledge requires a, a great deal of rigor. Uh, what I want to submit to you by, by way of uh, teaching in the manner that I'm teaching tonight is that it is very helpful when you're learning something to talk about both what it is and what it is not. These are not uh, to be in competition, one being harder than the other, positive knowledge versus negativa knowledge. In any case, in tonight's message, we're going to do some via negativa about Good Friday. And it's worth noting that via negativa is not knowledge, is not novel or new in terms of Christian instruction and understanding. The theologians of the church have long used the method of via negativa in what is known as apophatic theological reflection. Apophatic theology is a style or a kind of tradition where you're reflecting and systematizing what the Bible has to say about God, and you are doing it apophatically in that you're focusing on what the Bible says about God and what cannot be said about God in it. 
When we speak about God in the Christian faith, we say things like, God is infinite, don't we? We say things like, God is immutable, don't we? We say things like, God is immaterial, or God is simple, or God is omni-this, omnipresent, and so on. We make these statements of God, and when we're making these statements of God, we're actually doing via negativa. Uh, Think about it, follow me. When I say uh, that God is infinite, what am I saying? I'm saying God is not finite. That is to say, God is not limited. When I say God is immutable, what am I saying? I'm saying God is not changing. He's not undergoing mutations. Uh, When we say that God is immaterial, what what, what are we saying? I'm saying God's not matter. Uh, When I speak of ontological simplicity in God, which is to say that God doesn't have parts that come on and off. I lost some of you. God's not a Lego, you know, that you step on. Ow, God's arm. You know, he doesn't have parts. When we speak of God's holiness, uh, we're, we're describing... Uh, God and saying God's not like anything else. He's not like anything else. He's holy. He's, he's not a member of a species like cats or dogs or humans. He's a genus or a class or a kind of his own. He is the only triune creator whom creation owes its, its existence, its allegiance, its gratefulness, and its worship. Because God is a holy being and a class by himself, using via negativa is a very helpful method. Speaking about what he is not is quite effective, especially because we have finite minds and we're seeking to grow in our understanding of an infinite being. So with this in mind, we're going to approach the cross of Calvary this evening and we're going to do so talking about some things that are not true of the cross in a kind of via crucis, via negativa, the way of the cross with apophatic reflection. I have seven negative points with positive points attached to them. And the first is this, in Good Friday, Jesus is not a victim. He's a volunteer. In Good Friday, Jesus is not a victim. He's a volunteer. Let's talk about it. Good Friday didn't happen to Jesus. (laughs) No, he came for it. It was not an accident. It was on purpose. I ask you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Would you find your way to the 10th chapter in the Gospel of John? And as you read, uh, as you're moving there, as you think about the Gospel accounts, as you've read them, No doubt before, if you're familiar with the Bible, you read the Gospel accounts and you see Jesus all over the place. He knows that the cross is coming, and he is the one who is controlling its arrival. He rides into Jerusalem, as we saw last Sunday on Palm Sunday, on the exact day the prophecy said that he would. Throughout his ministry, he goes places, he avoids places and people very skillfully so that the powers who eventually execute him would do so not a day early and not a day late, but precisely on his timeline. Jesus is not a victim, he's a volunteer. I ask you to turn to John chapter 10 because I want to show you this moment where Jesus makes it very clear to his enemies and his disciples that he is not a victim. John chapter 10, draw your eyes at verse 14. John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. And even as the Father knows me, I I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too, which are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. This is a reference to the salvation of the Gentiles who are being brought into the promises of God. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is the commandment that I received from my Father. Jesus is not a victim. He's a volunteer. 
What will unfold does not happen because of Jesus' powerlessness. To be a victim is one who doesn't have power to, to, to rise up over. You know, we talk about people who are weak and people are taken advantage of. Jesus, Jesus isn't suffering from a, a, a lack of power. He's, he doesn't need a charger, okay? He, he's, he's got all the power that he needs. What is unfolding is not an issue of, of powerlessness. What is unfolding is an issue of omnipotence. Victims are those without power, as I said. Jesus, however, is omnipotent, so he cannot be a victim. He's a volunteer. When Judas comes to betray him, you know how the story goes, Jesus commands Judas, do what you got to do, big guy. Do what you got to do, big guy. Let, let, me say, let, let me say this again, because I'm being cheeky with do what you got to do, big guy, but that's my translation of the Greek, right? Do what you got to do, big guy, is a command in the Greek text. Judas comes to betray him, and Jesus says, do it. Do it. You know, there's a lot of funny gifts that just popped in my mind there, but do it. Do it. Betray me. He commands him to betray him. Jesus could have done the Darth Vader choke out in that one episode where he's just, you know, choking, choking fools out. Just, he could have, Judas could have come up, and he could have just gave him the Darth Vader choke out. Judas could have leaned in for the infamous kiss, and Jesus could have just... A duke can just fireballed him or whatever. But when the forces come for Jesus, Jesus commands them, yeah, do it. Jesus commands Peter, put away your sword. Now, please keep your finger in John chapter 10. I want to take you over to John chapter 18. I want you to see another scene for yourself. I'll bring you back to John 10 in just a moment. So park a little finger in there. I want to show you the arrest of Jesus that I just described. Look at the text, and you ask yourself, who has the power? Who's got the power? John, chapter 18, verse 3. Judas, having received the Roman cohort and the officers and the chief priests and the Pharisees, he came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all of the things that were coming upon him, went forth and he said to them, whom do you seek? Jesus has the power. He's not tripping. He's not scared. He knows what's going on. This is what he volunteered for. And might I say theologically, because the historical Jesus is the eternal Son, and the eternal Son is one with the Father and the Spirit, God has one divine will. Okay, so there's one God, one holy will that unites the one God who is. But in Jesus' humanity, becoming a full human, he has a human will. And so you'll hear him say things like, not my will, but yours be done, and, you know, and, and stuff like that, where you see in this union of the one person who is God and man, you, you, you see a submission of his human will to the divine will. And in that sense, we can talk about volunteering, because the human will must bend itself to the divine will. But to be sure in the divine will that is shared by the Father, Son, and Spirit, there is no bending and in which case the volunteer uh, metaphor sort of breaks down along those lines. But simply to apophatically show you, he's not a victim here. He's in control. Look at verse 5. And they answered him and said, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to him, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Remember what I was saying about the Darth Vader thing? Right? Like, a duke and street fighter, whatever metaphor works for you. He clearly has supernatural power. They are on the ground. Let the bodies hit the flow. They are on the ground right there. They are down. They've come for him. 
He says, I am he, and his enemies fall down to the ground. Noted New Testament scholar Professor Kostenberger writes, Falling to the ground is regularly a reaction to divine revelation. This striking response also conveys the powerlessness of Jesus' enemies when confronted with the power of God. Again, victims are powerless. Jesus is powerful. There is no shortage in his power. He speaks and they fall. It is worth noting that what he speaks is actually quite interesting. He says, I am he, in our English translations. In the Greek, it's two words, ego ami. Ego ami uh, could be a simple way of just sort of self-identifying yourself, like, hey, that's me. You know, you're at Starbucks or whatever, and they call your name. Eh, that's me. You know, you order your food, you give them your name. Hey, that's me. Ego ami could just be a simple way in Greek of saying, hey, that's me. But it could also be a self-identifying of oneself as divine. You see, God's name in the Hebrew Bible consisted of four letters, yod Hey vav Hey. Uh, we transliterate that as Y-H-W-H into English. It is referred to as the Tetragrammaton. In history and in Scripture, this, this name uh, is, is revealed to God's people Israel. It is a unique and holy name of God. We, we literally translate the Tetragrammaton as uh, I am or I am that I am. We see God in Scripture creating by the, the, the power of his word. We see God r revealed in Scripture and tradition as this pure act, this power. It is, no, it is no wonder that they then would fall when on the lips of the great I am in the flesh, the son in flesh, he utters, ego ami, I am. It is no wonder that they would fall at the sound of the divine name. Sadly, their stumble does not humble them. They get up and they continue in their mission, as we will continue reading the text, which ultimately was God's mission that Jesus is working out via divine concurrence. Draw your eyes to the text, verse 7. Therefore he asked them, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and Jesus answered, he said, I, I tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm he. So if you seek me, let, let these go on their way to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost no one. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave, and he cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, Put away your sword in the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? Again, Jesus has the power. He's got the power in his words to level them all. Jesus doesn't need a sword. His mouth is a sword for Pete's sake. When he speaks, the creation moves. When he speaks, soldiers fall. Clearly he is not a victim, he's a volunteer. Verse 9 tells us what Jesus was doing. He was fulfilling in his own words in, in that moment, showing you, man, he's in control of this thing. The text is loud and clear that Jesus is the one who was laying down his life. It was not the Roman soldiers who took his life. It was not Pontius Pilate. It was not Herod. It was not the Sanhedrin. It was not the people. Oh no, Jesus was not a victim on Good Friday. He was a volunteer for Good Friday, which raises the question of why volunteer for such a brutal death? Well, the answer to this question is found in our next apophatic point on my outline for this evening, Jesus was not a victim, he was a volunteer. Secondly, Jesus was not a sinner, he's a substitute. Now, a substitute is one who stands in the place of another. When I was a rebellious kid and uh, going to public schools and uh, you walk into class and you see your teacher's not there and you have a substitute, you get really excited when that happens, don't you? 
And uh, it's, it's a good analogy here for us tonight as we think of substitution because uh, most of the time our substitutes in school, at least in my experience, took a beating for the real teacher because uh, the real teacher we were afraid of, but the substitute were like, I don't have to see you again. I can act a fool. I might get away with it because you can't write all of our names down. And so the substitute took a beating for the real one. Well, analogously, when we're talking about what Jesus is doing on the cross, he's taking a beating for someone else. Jesus had to come and stand in the place of another, or rather, others, sinners. Going back to what I said about the Creator God and His love, and how His love was unrequited, and how there was a rebellion, and how there's this sovereign plan that's un unraveling. Well, th this is the center of the plan, for the Son to come, die at the hands of sinners, and to rescue from among the rebels a people for Himself. Not just a people, but children for Himself. The Son has come to make us sons, and to, to, to make us one with his Father. Sinners deserve death. We talked about that. You rebel against the giver of life, and so the consequence of that is death. It is the punishment that fits the crime of rebelling against the, your Creator. And the punishment that Jesus has come to take in Good Friday. He's come to die. Notice verse 11 in front of you. The language about taking the, the cup and drinking the cup. Elsewhere in the sayings of Jesus in the Bible, we, we see him referring to the cross as a cup. For example, Mark 14, 23 through 24 and 36. The cup is a cup of death and punishment. In the Last Supper, Jesus took the cup. And we'll have communion tonight. And, and what did he say when he took that cup? He said, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for what? The forgiveness of sins. It is worth noting here that the word for, that preposition for, in the Greek is a word huper. Hupero is a word that means in the place of, or for the benefit of, or on behalf of. We use the word for as a preposition that way. You might say, hey, this is for you, when we give a gift to someone. You know, or, or I'll do this for you. That is to say, I'll stand in your place and do something for you. We use the preposition this way. And this is why we describe Good Friday, we describe the cross of Calvary as vicarious. A vicarious act is an act that is done for another person, and we call it vicarious. The volunteer, not the victim, has come to do a vicarious work to take the cup that we were supposed to drink and to drink it for us. Jesus holds the cup. The cup is a hemlock. The cup is poison. The cup is a symbol of death and judgment. And, 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 and Jesus grabs that, and, and he postures, and he, and he positions, and, and, and he teaches his disciples in that moment, what he's come to do, I'm going to drink the cup. In the Hebrew Bible, this imagery of the cup of judgment is all over the place. Cups of wrath being poured out. In the New Testament, we see that imagery picked up in the book of Revelation, where you see the cups of wrath that are being poured out, Revelation 6 through 19, and they're being poured out by the apocalyptic Lamb of God. Now, speaking of a Lamb of God with John's gospel in front of us, it's worth noting that his gospel begins with the proclamation on the lips of of John the baptizer, that Jesus is the prophesied Lamb of God. Let me put it in front of you. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 29 and 136. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now the imagery of the Lamb has, lamb has eschatological overtones to it, and end times and stuff, but it also has sacrificial and substitutionary overtones, and that's the point that is before us, that he, he's, he has come, he has come as this, this wondrous substitute for us. He has come not not apophatic, not as a sinner, but as a substitute. The imagery of, of the lamb is an imagery of substitute inside of the Hebrew Bible. 
Uh, God provided a lamb as a substitute in the place of a son who deserved death. When we read Genesis 22 and Abraham and Isaac. In Exodus, God received the blood of a lamb as a substitute for those who were deserving death and those who he spared in Exodus chapter 12. In Isaiah 53, which we read at the beginning of service today, there is a lamb that is led to slaughter who is, who is stricken down for the transgressions of his people, for, in the place of, in behalf of. In Leviticus chapter 4, we read of the lamb who is without blemish, who is sacrificed for the people. The lamb without blemish. Being without blemish is a symbol for purity. The, the, the pure thing, the holy thing that is without sin is now a substitute for that which is sin. Apophatically on Good Friday, we see that Jesus is not the sinner. He is the innocent, unblemished lamb who has come as a substitute for those deserving death in this life and punishment in the afterlife. As a substitute, he rescues others from said punishment by drinking the cup for them and being the lamb for them, not just any old lamb, but that unblemished, pure lamb. Theologian Stephen Holmes writes, under the Old Testament sacrificial system, the shed blood of the substitute covers the sins of others and appeased the divine wrath by way of atonement. Therefore, in saying that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist is saying that Christ takes away sin through his sacrificial substitutionary death. The Gospel of John begins, as we saw with John heralding, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then it ends with that Lamb bleeding out on the cross. In fact, John highlights that Jesus' death was happening as the Passover lambs from the Passover holiday were being slaughtered in the temple. They were happening at the same time. And this is why, even today, Passover and Easter, Good Friday, they overlap with one another. Passover 2020 begins today. It begins today and extends to the evening of Saturday, April the 23rd. For countless Jewish believers in the Messiah, this season of Passover is a wonderful season of evangelism to share with their unbelieving Jewish friends and family of the Messiah who has come. He was literally being slaughtered on the cross as the lambs in the temple were being slaughtered. And he had been telling them that he was the lamb who has come. He's, he's, he's not a victim. He's a volunteer who's in full control of everything that is happening. He's not a sinner. He's a substitute that has come uh, to pay the, the debt for the sins of his, of his people. This is a, a, a wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful time to bring this, this message to, 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 to the people of promise. And so uh, messianic followers of Jesus today, I, many of my friends are engaging in faith. Oh, who do you think Isaiah is talking about? Who is he talking about? Who fulfills this prophecy? And we continue this work today as we bring the gospel to Jew and Gentile alike. And we, we, we come, those who are Gentiles on the outside, seeking to understand the, the history of Israel and, and the culture and these things like Passover because they're the images that teach us. If you don't understand sacrifice, you can't understand the cross. You have, you have to have this background. And so as Messianic followers are, are using the holiday of Passover to point to the true Passover lamb has come, we join uh, with the ancients in, in seeing this kind of uh, evangelistic fervor. The Jewish apostle Peter was doing the very same thing. First Peter, let me show you, chapter 2, verse 24. See how he describes Jesus who bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's Passover lamb language. It's substitutionary language. Likewise, another fellow uh, Jewish follower of Jesus, Shaul HaTarsi, who becomes the apostle Paul, he explained Jesus as the Passover for his people using substitutionary language in his writings that we have in what we call the New Testament. 
Understanding Good Friday as a substitution was so huge to the Apostle Paul that in 1 Corinthians 15, he said it was, and I quote, of first importance in the gospel that he preached. And that's why we wouldn't talk about anything else but this. It's of first importance. To quote Paul, Paul said, let me quote here, in, in the foremost place, I handed on to you what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day according to the Scriptures, end quote. And, and here in this quote that I just offered you from the first century, from the Jewish Apostle Paul uh, describing this Messiah, he uses that hooper language I was telling you about, that preposition for, in behalf of, in the place of. It's substitution language. Apophatically, Jesus was not dying for himself. He's innocent. Uh, hence, his death was not for himself. He was the substitute. In becoming our substitute, he took what we deserved on himself. Look at how the Apostle Paul explained this. This is a mighty verse. Commit it to memory. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Notice Jesus isn't only taking our sin. That's one side of the substitution. On the other side of the substitution, he is giving us our, uh, his righteousness. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. It'd be like in the illustration of the public school and the rebellious teenagers, if they act a fool to the substitute, and the substitute just takes it and then gives the good character of, of the substitute, him or herself, back to the, the students in the report of how they behaved. This has been called the great exchange. You took our messy behavior, our sin and our rebellion on yourself. And then, and, and then you didn't stop there, but you gave us your righteous behavior, your perfect account, and you applied it to us. This has been called the great exchange. Sin taken, righteousness given. Uh, Steve Lawson uh, explains this, and I quote, Here is the great exchange of the cross. All the sins of all who would ever trust Christ were placed on him. And he became their substitute. Christ went to the cross for our sake, that is, for the sake of all believers, so that we, all believers, might become righteous before God. When the sinner believes on Christ, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to him. Thus, the sin of the believer is exchanged for the righteousness of Christ. That's the gift, brothers and sisters, of salvation. This is why Good Friday is good, because of this exchange. See the cross. See on that cross an innocent man, not a sinner, who has become sin by way of substitution for us. And in thinking about him taking our place, there is another biblical concept to explore for understanding Good Friday. It is the idea of expiation, which I will contrast apophatically with the idea of being an example. That brings us to the next point. Good Friday isn't about being an example. It's about expiation. Now, we all know what an example is. So, you know, you, you, know, you know what it is to be an example. And to be sure, hear me, Jesus is very certainly an example to us. So, I'm not suggesting that Jesus is an example. Of course, he's an example. What I have in mind and what I'm getting at with the apophatic point is those who reduce the cross of Calvary to a mere example. An example of how to suffer. Yeah, that's, our, you know, that's, what, that's what Good Friday is. That's how you suffer. Or an example of love. You know, that's love. Right there, that's love. And an example maybe of, of, of how to endure um, um, shame, you know, and, and to do it well. You know, he's silent, he turns his cheek or whatever, you know, he's a positive example of these things. And again, to be sure, those are examples that are there. 
But in the history of interpreting the Bible, there have been some who have misinterpreted Good Friday along these lines. And they'll say, well, it, it, it's just, it sounds so judgmental. You know, Pastor Matt, what you're saying, it just sounds so harsh. All this substitution stuff, and he's taking a beat down for us. And, you know, I mean, I, you know, maybe you worked for uh, LA Unified, and you've been uh, victimized, and I'm giving you flashbacks. And you think, that's not fair what they do to these teachers. And, you know, they, it's just, are you telling me that God is, is giving an innocent person a, a whooping? That, do, that doesn't sound right. That sounds mean. It sounds unloving. And... Because of these presuppositions, uh, folks end up reinterpreting substitution drastically different and reducing it to a mere example. Most notably, in the 12th century, there was a man named Abelard who wrote of Good Friday like this, and I, I quote, Jesus died as a demonstration of God's love. And Abelard objected uh, to, to the idea that I was explaining to you about a substitution, about someone taking the beat down for us and, and satisfying the righteous standard of God's law. Uh, Abelard eventually was excommunicated. We don't have time for a church history lesson tonight, but his views still live on today in the way that people remove the cross from its historical, uh, sacrificial, uh, uh, Jewish temple context. After Abelard, there was a man named Faustus Socinus. He lived in the 1500s who rejected to this Oh, substitution, oh, mean God. Oh, so Sinus argued that Jesus was just an example of self-sacrificial love and, and dedication to God. That's what he's doing up there, hanging on the, tr on the trees, teaching you how to be more, more dedicated. Uh, rather than being an example of dedication or an example of love, and I'll say more about that because we in our culture worship the idea of love, more than being an example of discipline or dedication or whatever else, in the cross, in Good Friday, it's not, it's not so much example, it's expiation. A related term to expiation is the word propitiation. So, so follow with me, allow me to be a little technical. This is going to pay off if you understand these terms. In fact, these terms are related in Scripture. They overlap in biblical theology of the atonement and what's going on in the cross how our sins are covered by a holy God, and how sinners are reconciled to, to God, the term expiation and a related term, propitiation, are important. Take notes, write them down. To propitiate is this, to gain favor. To propitiate is to gain favor. The Latin word propitiate or propitiatare, it means make favorable. The prefix pro, it means for. Okay, going back to that hooper language and for something. So for, propitiation, Propitiation as a concept, it explains how Jesus' work before the eyes of God makes us right. How it takes us from guilty to innocent before God's law. Propitiation. Follow me. To expiate is to atone for wrongdoing by covering sin. Again, to expiate is to atone for wrongdoing by covering sin. Expiation gets at the filthiness of our sin and what we've done in rebelling against God which Jesus removes by his life, death, and resurrection. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was expiating us for our wrongdoings. The prefix ex, it means out of. So we have exit signs to get out of the building. So when we say Jesus is expiating us, it is a picture of him taking something out of us. Listen to the way theologian Dr. Charles Ryrie explained it. Propitiation means the placating of the personal wrath of God. Expiation is the removal of impersonal wrath, sin, and guilt. 
Expiation has to do with reparation for a wrong. Propitiation carries with it the added idea of appeasing the offended person and thus brings into picture the question of why the offended person was offended. In other words, propitiation brings the wrath of God into the picture while expiation can leave it out. If one wanted to use both words correctly and in connection with, with each other, then he should say that Christ propitiated the wrath of God by becoming an expiation for our sins. Now, if I lost you, a really simple way of saying this is to say that propitiation deals with God's appeasement as the offended party, and expiation deals with our sin as the offending party. It is, it is worth noting that when uh, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, they would use these terms of propitiation and expiation in reference to the temple and language of sacrifice. In, in, in fact, in, in, in the temple, uh, where, the, where the blood was sprinkled on the very altar, they would use these terms and weave these terms together. Hopefully your Bibles are still open. Would you move from where we left off in John and find your way to the third chapter in the Gospel of John? Speaking of the offending party and the offended party and the punishment and the wrath that we deserve, that Christ propitiates and expiates, look at John chapter 3 and draw your eyes at verse 36 in John chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son, John writes, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, this very clearly explains to us the, what is on the backs of sinners. It's, it's wrath, it's punishment. Comfortable cultures like ours have a hard time with those concepts, and so we want to reduce it to like a love story or a Disney movie or something like this, because we live quite comfortably. If you're, say, in the Ukraine and you've got bombs flying over your head or you're in a land where you've got foreign enemies just jacking you, the, the idea of wrath and payback is one you intuitively go, oh yeah, totally, that's the right thing to overthrow the bad guys. The problem for us in our culture is we don't think we're bad guys when it comes to talk about God. We think we're fine, we think God really loves us, and everyone gets a participation trophy uh, and, you know, with God. He loves us and everything's fine. But the scriptures are explaining to us, no, no, his wrath burns against us because we've rebelled against him. The, the wrath, then, needs to be propitiated. Our guilt needs to be expiated. As it relates to Good Friday, that's what's happening on the cross. That's why it's so good. That's why I'm explaining to you these terms, and hopefully you're like, yeah, or maybe you're just bored, and you can poker face. But, you know, the point is you've got expiation and propitiation going on in Good Friday. When Jesus is bleeding out on the cross, something is happening. He's not just up there... Look at what I can do. You know, he's not just up there giving you an example. Something is happening. It's, it's apophatically not an example of, of discipline or chivalry or, or, or love. I said I would say more about love in a moment, and I'll, I'll use a, a theologian, Dr. Hodge, to explain love and expiation and propitiation. He does a good job with it, let me quote. Expiation and propitiation are correlative terms. The sinner or his guilt is expiated. God or justice is propitiated. Guilt must, from the nature of God, be visited with punishment, which is the expression of God's disapprobation uh, dis, uh, of sin. Guilt is expiated in the scriptural representation covered by satisfaction, that is, by vicarious punishment. God is thereby rendered 
propitious. That is, it is now consistent with his nature to pardon and to bless the sinner. Propitious and loving are not convertible terms. God is love. He loves us while sinners and before satisfaction was rendered. Satisfaction or expiation does not awaken love in the divine mind. It only renders it consistent with his justice that God should exercise his love towards transgressors of his law. To be sure, it is a message of love. You've got, you've, you've got John 3 in front of you, right? There, there's that, that, that famous verse, verse 16 in front of you. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but, but have eternal life. Two verses before it, he's using the imagery of Moses being uh, 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 lifting up the serpent in the, in the wilderness and the sign of the Son of Man lifting up. It's a reference to the cross in verse 14. So come verse 15, 16, you, you, you've got cross in context. Yes, it's a picture of love. It's worth noting that our English translations here are somewhat mis misleading a bit. For God so loved the world... Can't tell you how many times I've heard preachers go off on this and say, God so loved the world. And actually, the so there is an adverb who toss in the Greek, and it's not operating as a so or like really, you know, uh, it's, it's operating as a in this manner. If you have a ESV, the English Standard Version, it actually translates it for God. This is how God loved the world, that he gave his only son. The, the focus is on the cross, like that, that's how God loved us. It wasn't that we were so loving and cute and adorable. No, no, this is how he loved us. He sent the son to die for us. Indeed, the love of God is display in full on the cross, and it's not just an example, it's actually happening. He's actually doing something up there. Justice is being satisfied, expiation, propitiation, and more. Let's explore a few more points uh, and, and wind things down here. I'll move quicker with these other ones. Those sort of ground and anchor them. The next one that I have for you is that uh, Jesus is not a loser. He's a liberator. Would you turn from John 3, where we are, over to John 8? The liberation motif inside of the New Testament is a big one. It, fl it flows from the Hebrew Bible. The, 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 the big motif of the Hebrew Bible is the Exodus account, where God comes as an abolitionist who rescues slaves in bondage. Jesus' first sermon in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 4, he gets up to preach in the synagogue and, and he, he, he speaks of coming to proclaim the release of the captives and the slaves. He comes to liberate. He uses the language of Jubilee, the favorable year of the Lord, where all the slaves are manumitted, they're, they're set free. Inside of Scripture, sin is, is likened to debt. And in the ancient world, debts are what got you enslaved. Unlike the transatlantic slave trade and contemporary race-based slavery, the slavery of the ancient world was a debt bondage system. When you had money that you owed, you became in, in debt and you had to work for the man to pay it off. Uh, we, can, we can say it sounds inhumane, uh, but it's a, it's a system that's quite foreign to us. But you racked up the debt and now you, go, you become an indentured servant and you pay that off. Well, the Bible uses that to talk about sin. You know when you get in over your head on something and you get debt and you can't pay it off on your own and you owe a debt that you cannot pay, you need someone to pay it for you. Jesus is a, a liberator in the themes of the New Testament who comes and he liberates by paying the debt for you. I ask you to turn to John 8, verse 34, 
Look at verse 34. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does not remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. In the introduction, I quoted a scholar to you to show you the scandal and the shame of the cross. The cross, the cross, the crucifixion was used on slaves. The fact that he hangs on a symbol of slavery itself drives in this motif in the New Testament. No, no, no. He's, he has become a slave to liberate you, to give you life, to set you free. You've been rescued from that, and he sets you free. Jesus wasn't a loser on that cross. He was a liberator. Next, Jesus was not defeated. He was disarming. Uh, you've got John still in front of you. Just you, keep your Bibles open to John 8. I'll show you a reference there, but some cross-referencing. We see inside of Scripture uh, much about the forces of darkness. There's real demons, and there's a real devil, and there's real forces of darkness. And the Apostle Paul writes about us engaging in, in, in warfare with those forces. Jesus, in his ministry in the earth, he, he, he duked it out. He punked the forces of darkness. Jesus has come in... And, and, and he spoils the goods of the kingdom of darkness. He goes into the wilderness and the temptation, and no weapon formed against him would prosper. He conquers the devil. He casts out demons. He sent his disciples to also cast out demons. He gave them authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. He's all over the place just punking the kingdom of darkness. And we read in the New Testament in places like Colossians chapter 2 that when he was hanging on the cross, that's exactly what he was doing. The cross was an act of exorcism. He was actually disarming. Look at the language here. He is disarming, verse 15, Colossians 2, the rulers and the authorities, these spiritual forces. He is making a public spectacle out of them. So while the cross is this symbol of shame, a slave's death, a scandal, it actually is the other way around. He was using that, that very symbol of darkness to disarm the darkness. Again, when he was hanging on the cross, he wasn't just an example, he's doing something. Not only is he substituting himself for us, expiation, but he's also disarming the principalities and the powers. The, the storyline of man's rebellion against God Woven into that storyline, I left it out in the introduction, are these forces of darkness that played a hand in this. Forces of darkness, of spiritual forces that also rebelled against the Creator. And the very plan that God is unraveling with the Son becoming a man and the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the nations is an undoing of the kingdom of darkness. St. John Chrysostom has this wonderful quote, and I pray it enriches your evening. Christ conquered the devil by using the same weapons the devil used against us. A virgin, a tree, and death. You go back to Genesis. The tree, right? The virgin, Eve. Right? Christ conquered the devil by using the same weapons that the devil used against us. A virgin, a tree, and death. These tokens of our demise have now become tokens of victory. Instead of Eve, there was Mary. Instead of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was the wood of the cross of Calvary. Instead of Adam's death, we have the death of the Christ, and in him we have victory. This victory motif is all, all over the place inside of the scriptures, and it moves to, to, to not only on the cross him disarming them, but him giving power to his followers to overcome. 
So in 1 John 2.13, we overcome the evil one. In 1 John 5, verse 4 and 5, repeatedly overcome the world. Victory has overcome. The one who overcomes. It's this language of, of overthrowing the forces of darkness. I ask you to keep your Bibles open to John in chapter 8 there. Look at verse 42. Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not uh, even come of my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do his desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, the virgin and the tree from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, it's a lie and he speaks from his own nature because in his nature, he's a liar, the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you don't believe. You see, there were those who didn't believe. There were those who weren't liberated. There were those who didn't have his substitution, who didn't get that great gift. No expiation, no propitiation. You say, well, how is that fair? Exactly. We all, we all deserve to be in the darkness, but he has come to rescue a children for the family of his father. Uh, further, another point again, let's move fast. Uh, his death, Good Friday, is not an obituary, it's an overthrow. And this is building on my point here of this power and this forcing back the kingdom of darkness. All throughout the Bible, you have enemies that come up against God, and repeatedly, if there was time to just give you verses, I, you know, I have a whole, I have more notes than I know what to do with, I'm sorry you guys, but just verses about God just being the victor over his enemies. Psalm 23, it's a very popular passage, the Lord is my shepherd, what, is the, what does the Lord do? He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He is the great power that overthrows the forces of darkness and then gives to his people that promise that we too will have victory. Thanks be to God, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2.14, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Sweet aroma language is, is the language of sacrifice. Through the sacrifice, uh, uh, the one who hangs on the cross, who disarms the principalities and the powers, he has passed that on to us. And there is victory in the Lamb. In the book of Revelation, that language of, of the victory of the Lamb to those who overcome, it's all over the place. My final point for tonight in giving you an apophatic instruction of Good Friday is this, that Good Friday is not about probability, it's about providence. Repeatedly in the text of Scripture, repeatedly in the text of Scripture, we see he was in full control of Good Friday. In John chapter 7, we, we, we see the haters, the haters going to hate, they're coming to get him. John 7.30, they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because the hour had not come. John 8.20, uh, he, he's, he, he spoke in the treasury and he's teaching in the temple. No one seized him because the hour had not come. Good Friday was planned to the T. The cross was planned to the T. He is fulfilling it absolutely perfectly so as we think about Good Friday and we look at the cross, again, it's not a victim. This is a volunteer. He's not a sinner. He's a substitute. He's not a mere example. He's our expiation. He's not losing. He's winning. He's, he's liberating. They're not defeating him. He's actually disarming them. This isn't a, a, a dead man in an obituary. This is a hostile overthrow. This isn't probability. This is absolute providence. What unfolds in the text for, 
for, of, of the scriptures as it's teaching us about Good Friday is telling us it's not accident, it's providence. And Jesus is very loud and clear about this. In the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 8, we read of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. This was ordained by God as his election of you is ordained by God, and nothing would thwart it. Nothing is going to throw him off. I love in John 8, 59, let me put this verse in front of you, where it says, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple. You're not going to kill him with rocks. He has come to die with wood. He's come to die on a cross. That brings us back full circle to the introduction this evening. Remember, remember the quote from Dr. Morales that I offered you at the beginning about the scandal of the cross and how horrific it was and the dregs of society that were killed that way, a slave's death, and how, how severe that was and how horrible that was. This was the worst kind of way to die at that moment in history. Dare I say it be the worst way to die today. And that is the one that Almighty God ordained to take upon Himself. He wasn't going to have an easy death. He had come to suffer for us. He had come to take our stigma and our shame. He had, he had come to, to, to die in our place. He had come to give us His righteousness. So on this Good Friday, as we take the cup, and we think of all that Good Friday was and all that it was not, we were reminded of, yes, His love for us. And while we were yet sinners, He would die for us. We, we, we are reminded that Jesus took our sin by dying in our place. We're, we're, we are reminded that Jesus didn't come and say, hey, you want to have a relationship with God? Hey, you want to be saved? And give us a whole bunch of list of things to do to make ourselves right with God. Hey, you want God to forgive you? You got to love him more. You got to stop sinning so much. You got to do this and this and this. You, you want God to scratch your back, you got to start scratching his back. That's not what he came to do. He came to die to take the penalty. You see, the message, the message of the cross on Good Friday is not, hey, sinners, you want to get right with God? You better go do X, Y, and Z. The message of the cross is not do, it's done. Donezo. He did it for you. He did it in your place. So as you eat the bread, be reminded he was broken for you. As you pull back the top on the cup, be reminded what I taught you tonight. Cups are symbols of punishment. Cups are symbols of, of wrath. And he holds it up and he flips the script and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And he tells his followers, do this in remembrance of me. This would be oxymoronic if Sunday didn't come. Why are we going to sit around and drink a symbol of blood for a corpse that's you know, rotting in a tomb in Jerusalem? Because the corpse isn't rotting. The corpse was walk, walking around alive from the dead to show the check didn't bounce. The transfer went through. And he ascended to heaven, and he's promised to come again to raise the dead in Christ, to inaugurate his kingdom come. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll drink of the cup and we'll see, oh, how sweet it is. Oh, how sweet it is to have our sins expiated, propitiated, and more. Let's drink the cup.
He's not a victim. He's a volunteer. He's not a sinner. He's a substitute. He's not an example. He's our expiation. He's not a loser. He's a liberator. He's not defeated. He's disarmed the bad guys. He, he, he didn't go down in an obituary. He's, over, he's overthrown. It didn't, none of this happened by probability. It happened by providence. There's not a renegade molecule in the universe that escapes the meticulous sovereign hand of God. And so let us sing to him. The worship team is going to lead us in two final songs. We're going to stand, we're going to sing, and we're going to rejoice for what we have learned tonight of Good Friday. Of course, we're just scratching the surface. There's so much more that could be said, and we'll, we'll come back on, on Sunday and rejoice all the more. Let's pray, and we'll stand and sing. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the revelation that he has given to us. Not only that we would behold him, but we would behold you, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. At the sound of the divine name, the forces of evil fell on their faces. They got back up doing deeds of darkness, not realizing that in your hand, in your sovereign hand, you were using it all to unwork a plan, a humbling plan, where you came and you died for us. Son, the Son of God died for us to make us sons of you, O Father. Without him, we would be without hope. Our faith would be in vain. So, Father, we thank you for sending your Son. We thank you for sending the Spirit to open our eyes. And, Lord, we cry out to you tonight. Do a work in our hearts. We, we, we need you at work in our hearts. We, we need you to draw us unto yourself. Receive these songs of worship, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.